It looks like I got last week's nose steel here. I can just pick up from there. Is that all right? Good morning. Good to see you here. Give me just a second here. I have um, not only what I have want to say today, but I have uh, the next three weeks sitting in front of me. So, you know, if I get lost in my notes, you might be here a while. Yeah. No, just kidding. I promise I will try not to do that. I'm looking, trying to be a little more time conscious and not to do it. Um, I want to invite you to engage with me this this month as we look at what changed history. Um, and what I would really say is ultimately finishing up on Christmas morning is the greatest story ever told. Okay? Um, we Our calendars, we divide our calendars right now, the day it is, is because of we, go, we base it off of Christ and his coming, his birth. Before he came, we know it as B.C. Or if you're in a secular uh, setting, they'll say B.C.E. because they just won't want to acknowledge Christ. Um, but they kind of change a little bit. But even now, we have year 2022. It's defined as what? A.D. 2022, which is the Latin... Uh, initials Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord, right? And I um, was looking at it this year or this week, and I have before you some candles, and I'm not uh, by any means uh, um, Catholic or Episcopalian or anything like that, uh, uh, but I do like the um, the sense of of looking at the Advent. You know, in a theme of what it means. The word itself means a coming approach or arrival. And um, um, it's observed the four Sundays before Christmas Day. And um, we are technically uh, a Sunday late. Um, and normally you, uh, you know, would start last Sunday, but uh, uh, circumstances dictated otherwise. But we're going to have Christmas on. Uh, the fourth Sunday, though we're just going to go with that uh, this time. And so what I want to do is, in representing these candles, and I'll have the different ones, I just put together what I could uh, today, but different themes uh, that the Advent brings out as far as emphasis. Um, and the first uh, uh, candle represents hope, and it has to do uh, with the uh, prophets and the foretelling of Christ's coming. And so we're going to look at that today. But the purpose of the Advent is to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. Like I said, it changed history. And we still uh, are experiencing that uh, today. And we are still anticipating what? His second coming, his second Advent, right? Um, and um, this is a tradition that goes back to the 5th, 6th uh, century um, after Christ. And um, you're supposed to have, you know, this is my my liberty that I took, is I don't have the exact color candle or the right type necessarily, but just that's not the point, okay? 
point is that we're just we're looking at uh, Christ and his coming and what it brings. And the first thing that we look at is uh, the hope that he brings. Um, so, um, Ben, to start off, I'm going to let you know I have a joke. Um, and uh, it has to do, it's called, I call it my hope joke. And it's entitled, Only Needs Bat. And it's about this little boy. He's uh, playing the first game of the first season of his Little League baseball season. And he's playing in the outfield. And, of course, you know, between watching butterflies and, and counting worms and stuff on the ground and stuff and everything, he finally, the ball is hit to him. And he, he, he sees it and he runs it down and he throws it back in. And, uh, and someone nearby is watching him. And says uh, uh, says uh, hey um, are you guys uh, doing okay how's your team doing and uh, he says I uh, he says what's the score and the little boy turns around and he says um, he says well it's uh, we're doing okay the team's team's doing fine he says it's nineteen to nothing and uh, <laughs> the guy says to him he says says well are you a little uh, you know sad Feel like you guys already lost and everything? He says, oh, no. We hadn't even got up to bat yet. <laughs> oh, oh, I like that one. Um, but uh, there is a sense in which uh, hope is uh, vital. Um, someone, someone once said um, that uh, uh, man can live 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only one second without hope. And there's some truth to that. Um, uh, hope is like a light shining in a dark place. And what we're looking at today and the, what this first candle represents is, as I said, uh, Isaiah and the other prophets in the Old Testament that predicted the, the coming of Jesus. Uh, and there are numerous prophecies that foretell Christ's coming centuries before he ever actually arrived. Uh, if you can look in, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22, introduces a common statement um, that you'll see throughout the book of Matthew because he is speaking to a Jewish audience. And I think if you were to ever uh, be able to witness to a Jewish person who hasn't come to faith in Christ yet and doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah yet, Matthew would be a good book because why is Matthew doing but speaking to Jews about the Messiah. Um, and one of the things that he says in verse 22, he says, all this took place to what? Fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Okay? And one of the prophecies, we're going to look at some of these prophecies, and I'm going to give you an acronym uh, to go off of in just a little bit. But one of these prophecies is found uh, here in verse 23 of Matthew. And it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now, in reference to the birth of Jesus, Matthew cited this specific prophecy from Isaiah, right? When did Isaiah give this prophecy? Roughly 700 plus years earlier. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. 
Messiah is one. Right? Now, before you go any further, some liberal critics want to say, well, that virgin doesn't necessarily mean a virgin and means maybe a young maiden. And stuff. Well, if you look at the actual translation and stuff, it says a young woman who had never known a man. Okay? Uh, it's a pretty good definite translation for what a virgin does. Um, but this amazing event demonstrates God's infinite knowledge and power and that he is capable of foretelling the future with perfect precision and he has the power to bring his prophecies to pass, even if that means a virgin conceiving. Okay? Um, I uh, remember uh, one of my classes at a seminary uh, professor was talking about how God lives in the one eternal now. Uh, there's no real, to you, we have a past, a present, and a future. But to God, it's all, you know, one. Uh, and so uh, for him to foretell the, the future is nothing because that's part of what he lives in. You and I can't quite get that, but there's a past and a present and a future to us. Um, but if he can create a person, a man out of the dust of the earth and breathe into him life, uh, how hard is it for him to conceive life in the womb of a virgin? Not very difficult at all. That's just one prophecy to start, okay? Sometime after Christ's birth, then you had the Magi, the wise men came, right? Now we know, of course, in the typical nativity scenes, you have the wise men there, but when Jesus was actually born, but that's no, that's not you know the case. I, I I had no problem with it being there. They were there at some point, but they were there sometime afterward, technically. Um, but they arrived uh, in Jerusalem, and these were the best astronomers, astrologers of the day. Okay, uh, these weren't just your pop astrology type of people. You know, what's your sign type thing. You know, stuff and everything. These were people who really knew their stuff. Okay could read the stars, so to speak, right? And so I want to just, a side note, make you think about, um, they read the stars and it led them to where? Jerusalem, okay? How did they know eventually arrive at the right place in Bethlehem? Well, they went and met with Herod, gathered with the chief priests and the scribes, and they asked, where is the Messiah to be born? And what did they do? They looked at Scripture. They looked up Micah 5.2, right? And Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay? So I just want to say that if you are uh, into uh, reading your daily horoscope, uh, I, I just want to say that um, read your daily Bible verse instead because it will lead you to the right place in the first place rather than having to go somewhere else, okay? Because even the best astrologers, astronomers of the day at that time, and these gentlemen were, uh, uh, they had to eventually go to Scripture to find out exactly where they needed to go. That prophecy was written some about 700, and, 700 to 750 years prior uh, to it coming to be. And 
you remember Herod's response when they came? Was he, uh, what did he say? You remember he says, oh, let me know too, because I want to go worship, right? Is that true? No. He wanted to kill him, right? Because he was a threat. If you know anything about Herod, he was pretty ruthless with his family um, and some of the things that he did. Um, but he wanted to find out where he was, and he says, oh, that, that I can worship him too. Uh, and he, uh, you remember what he instituted when, after he, when he found out? He said, kill all the, the Hebrew boys that are under two years, two years now. And he didn't know exactly how old, how old it was, Christ was at that time, right? So he says, have them all, all the male babies killed that are two years younger and that are from Bethlehem, right? Um, and there is a passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, Verse 15, which says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Cited in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, again, that it might be fulfilled. Okay. Now, this passage originally meant, uh, was a, a relationship to the, the Israel uh, male children that were taken uh, to Babylon in captivity. Uh, but it also, and, it, and it, they used the term Rachel because Rachel was representative of that was near and dearest to uh, Israel, to Jacob. You remember who was his favorite, but Rachel and her children, Joseph and Benjamin. And there's a passage um, uh, that talks about of them being no more. And uh, it also talks about them being carried away into Egypt in Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. And Ramah was a town that was close to Jerusalem associated with Rachel's tomb. And so this was all associated with, uh, with what was taking place and what would be foretold that when Christ would be born, that there would be lamenting and weeping and crying uh, because of what Herod ultimately did. And not knowing it, but he's fulfilling scripture centuries later after it had been prophesied that this would, be, this would take place. There's another prophecy uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, uh, Out of Egypt I called my son. You remember that Joseph had a dream and he was told that he was not to take, you know, to take uh, Mary and, and Jesus away from there, right? To not stay. And he takes them to Egypt, right? Uh, and upon their return, God's uh, uh, words to Hosea were fulfilled. That prophecy itself was also over 700 years old. The prophecy was originally made as a statement of history, and God had called and brought Israel out of Egypt. God, guided, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, Matthew used these words to refer to the Messiah. Now, there's another prophecy, and I'm doing this on purpose, so just bear with me, okay? But another prophecy that's discussed by Matthew pertaining to the events in Jesus' early life, um, that has to do with his boyhood home, and that says that he would be called a Nazarene in chapter 2, verse 23 of Matthew. Okay? Now, most likely this does not mean that Jesus took a Nazarite vow, like Samson or something like that necessarily, uh, because there's no record of Jesus having done that. Now, Jesus did fulfill this uh, uh, to, to have that if he had chose to, but but he did not. Um, and But nonetheless, the word Nazareth comes from the word Netzer, 
which means branch. And multiple pro, uh, prophets spoke of the Messiah as the branch. Uh, in Isaiah 11.1 1, and Jeremiah 23 and in Zechariah 3 and 6, uh, all refer to the Messiah as the branch. So it's most likely, and you remember even Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Referring to who Jesus, where he was from. Okay. Um, and so most likely it has to do with that um, and that in fulfilling that prophecy there. But it can also be said that there are several prophets uh, that said, revealed that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. You can read Isaiah chapter 53, Psalms 22, or Daniel 9, 26, Zechariah 12. Um, and there's just ongoing wealth of prophecies that are made centuries before Christ ever came. But Christ is a unique, is he not? We can rejoice that the Messiah has come to earth and dealt with our sin. We can praise God for fulfilling his promises. And we can have complete confidence that he will always be faithful to do what he has declared. One of the most comforting things that I look at when I look at these fulfilled prophecies is I look at the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Because when you do, you realize that the same God who fulfilled those promises has made more promises, has he not? He says, if I leave, what? I'll come back, right? I'm going to return. Um, interesting to note that there are no prophecies foretelling details about the birth of any other religious leaders. There are no prophecies alerting the world to the coming of Muhammad, uh, Joseph Smith, David Koresh, Pastor Russell, or Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha. None. Yet the Old Testament pinpoints numerous details about the life of Jesus. So when we look at these prophecies, what do they tell us? Well, in the first two chapters of Matthew, just starting off with this, we see the miraculous conception of the Messiah. We see that he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He would come out of Egypt and be called a Nazarene. And we also see that there would be bitter agony among the mothers in that area. Those are just some prophecies. In the genealogy recorded in Matthew's first chapter, we discover the fulfillment of several other Old Testament prophecies. We realize, you, you look at the beginning of the book of Matthew, and it starts off with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the what? Son of Abraham, right? Connecting his line with that of Abraham. There's prophecies about that, right? Remember, God made promises to Abraham and David. Oh. A search through the rest of Scripture reveals dozens of other details prophesied about the Messiah, including facts that he would ride in on a donkey. Remember when he rode into Jerusalem, right? His triumphal entry. That he would be betrayed by a friend, and that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that 30 pieces of silver would then be used to buy a potter's field. These were all prophecies that were made centuries before, that he would die a sacrificial death, that he would be killed among criminals. You remember there was a, one on each side of him when he was crucified, right? 
and that he would be buried with the wealthy. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? Right? That he would rise from the dead, most importantly. That he would say certain things on the cross. My favorite of which is, what is the first thing that Jesus said when he was on the cross? Do you remember? Father, forgive me. Right? Do you imagine having that heart and that attitude of forgiveness in light of what was taking place? I dare say that none of us would have that feeling, most likely, apart from what God has done in our own life. He would be mocked and he would... And, and and his clothes would even be gambled for. You remember the soldiers casting lots for who would get his garments, right? All prophesied centuries before, right? Now, these were not just lucky guesses, right? It's impossible to get that many that right that often, right? And one of the things we look at when we look at Old Testament prophets, if they're truly of God, what? When they're speaking from God, they must be 100% correct 100% of the time. If they fail at any point, in any time, in any way, it's not a true message from God. Okay? So when we look at these prophecies and we see these fulfilled over and over and over and over and over, it's kind of like Lee Strobel said when he was doing his own personal investigation. He was an atheist when he first uh, started investigating the resurrection of Christ, and the claims of Christianity. And he got upset because his wife came to, to faith in Christ, and he set out to prove him wrong. And as he began to realize that, like this, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is pointing to Christ, and everything substantiates rather than contradicts Christianity in Christ, and he says it, it's like getting to, to the point where you say, this is a smoking gun. This is the thing. And it is if I have come to the point where I have found the thumbprint of God, and it's him. And he came to faith in Christ himself, and he's not the first one who's done that. There's been many who have, who have had an atheistic mindset. Um, uh, Sir William Ramsey and, and Simon Greenleaf and various others um, uh, who have come uh, to faith in Christ after, after doing their own investigations. Uh, but these were precise predictions uh, made by the all-knowing God of the Bible who repeatedly demonstrated that he has perfect knowledge of past, present, and future. Perfect knowledge. As I jokingly said before, there is nothing at no time that God looks at and says, I didn't see that pattern. Right? Why? Because he is an omniscient, all-knowing God. And there is nothing. He even knows you better than you know yourself. We can be completely confident that he will always make good on his promises and that those future events that he has foretold will come to pass. Now, I want to give you uh, an acronym this morning, and I'll try to make this as quickly as possible. But if you want to write down... Uh, the word maps, I'm like write it from top to bottom, say, so from top to bottom, M-A-P-S. And I'm borrowing this from Payne Canagraph that I got years ago. But it helps you uh, remember maps. Um, maps, the M stands for manuscripts, 
Okay. And I'll just give you these right off the top, and then you can fill it out as you go. Um, the A stands for archaeology. The P stands for uh, prophetic uh, prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. And the S stands for statistical probability. I just want to write stats. Okay. Um, but if you can remember these, that one little acronym, if you ever come along with anybody who tries to doubt the reliability of Scripture or the fact that uh, Jesus is who he says he is and, and, and verified his claims, you remember this little acronym and it will help you uh, at least know what you should uh, be thinking and how uh, you might share with someone else. Now, as far as manuscripts are concerned, this relates to the test used to determine the reliability of the extant manuscripts uh, of the original documents penned by the scriptures. Now, we do not possess the original documents. And actually, I would say, thank God we don't. Because if we had someone, for instance, the Catholic Church or something, that had uh, the original documents, what would they do most likely? They would have it locked away in a vault behind somewhere else, and they could say, we're the ones who know exactly what it says. Okay? And we'll let you know when we want to know, if we want to know. Right? But I think God in his wisdom knew that that is not what he wanted. Right? So he gave us numerous, numerous copies of the original. And in fact, you can take another little acronym for manuscripts and, and under the word B, B-E-E. -E. Okay, stands for bibliographic, eyewitness, and external. Okay, the bibliographic test considers the quantity of manuscripts uh, that we have, fragments and otherwise. Okay, um, now the Bible has stronger bibliographic support than any other document of antiquity by far. It is not even close. It is a joke to really compare anything to the scripture when it comes to antiquity because. When you look at it, we have, for the Old Testament alone, we have over 14,000 manuscripts and fragments of the Old Testament. 14,000. Now, I don't know if you realize in some other books of antiquity, but they have, you know, 1 to 10 that are 900 years or 1,000 years or better or further apart from the original writing to the date of the manuscript, the copies. And they're saying that's reliable. Well, you, in Scripture, you have... You have thousands of documents uh, that all verify the same thing. I, I wish I had time to kind of give you a little, little uh, textual uh, example here, but you can see that, that it's like taking the same sentence and writing it ten times, and in each sentence there may be one letter of one sentence that is you know, omitted or crossed out or a little confused or something's not quite right. It's copyist error, you know, because you just, when you're copying all that, eventually somebody's going to make a mistake somewhere, okay? But if you took all those ten lines and it has the same sentence and you could read, read it, even though there was an error in one sentence in each one in a different place, you could make out exactly what it says. Why? Because they all basically say the same thing. And that's the type of things that you see when you look at the manuscript copies in Scripture. And when you have thousands of them, it only helps to validate exactly what it said. 
Now, if I only had two copies or three copies, then I might say, well, there could be other copies out there that say something entirely different. But when I have thousands, it's like one of my professors said, said it's purer than ivory soap as far as its accuracy. And, you know, in ivory soap, the commercials that used to be says 99.45% pure. Well, he says it's, this is 99.95% pure, okay? Purer than ivory soap, okay? Because when you look at it, we have over 10,000 documents, Old Testament documents uh, from um, a storeroom in Egypt uh, found in 1897. We have 190 dead scrolls uh, that were found in 1947 to uh, 1955. Uh, and we have over 4,000, 4,314 assorted other copies of the Old Testament, accumulating in, in roughly about 14,000 copies of the Old Testament alone. Okay? And then when you look at the New Testament, in just the Greek manuscripts, which the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, right? But in, in, in the New Testament, you have over 5,000, 5,366, I believe it was, uh, um, manuscript copies of the New Testament. What does that say to you? When, when you look at it and, it and you say, when I put copy after copy after copy after copy, and it says the same thing, and I'll give you another example. Look in your Bibles at a second at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Gary Habermas, um, who I met at my seminary years ago, um, uh, he said one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, in regards to a little passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Um, and he said that this particular passage, we have New Testament manuscripts that go back to within, he says, 25 years of the date of it happening, okay, of when it took place. With it, that's less than a lifetime, okay, less than a generation. And it is commonly said that it at least takes two generations for legend or myth to develop and stuff. You have manuscripts going back that say the same things as what we have in your Bibles today that said the same thing going back to within the lifetime of when it was actually took place. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, it says this, and I want you to note, I'm going to read the first part of it and the last part of it, okay? Um, let's see, it says, um, uh, not in the first sentence of chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 15, but it says, that Christ died for our sins, um, with the scriptures that he was buried, uh, that he was raised on the third day according uh, in, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that statement in verse the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4, in accordance with the scriptures, is kind of like a bookend, okay? Saying this is, this is kind of telling you what they were doing. And he says, he says, what did they teach at that time? And he says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, right, in accordance with the scripture. Now, Gary Habermas says that this particular passage relates back to roughly A.D. 35. Within two years or so from the time of the event actually taking place. Now, 
if you have stuff like that that the early church is teaching right off the bat and you have numerous copies that are being uh, made that all say the same thing, then we can rest assured that this is what the, the church believed from the very beginning. Okay? And it hasn't changed. Okay? Um, and so I give you some of that, and there's a whole lot more can be said, but for the sake of time, I'm going to have to move on. Uh, but the bibliographic evidence is overwhelming. Then you look at things like the eyewitness document tests, uh, sometimes to refer to as the internal test, which focuses on the uh, eyewitness credentials of the authors. The Old and New Testaments authors were eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses of the majority of the events they described. For instance, in Moses, he participated in and was eyewitness to the remarkable events of the Egyptian captivity, the Exodus, the 40 years in the desert, and Israel's encampment before they entered the Promised Land. Okay, And he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Right, The New Testament writers had the same eyewitness authenticity. Luke, in Luke 1, he starts off, and one of the things that he says, he says that we carefully investigated everything. Okay? He was meticulous about what he was writing down because he knew, inspired by God, that this would be something that we need to make sure we got right. Okay? And so when I, when I, I say all this with the, with the copies of the manuscripts and everything like that, because I want you to understand that what, you're, what you read in your Bible today, you can rest assured, is what was originally taught and believed from the very beginning, without a doubt. Okay? And in fact, you have later on, you have Peter, which um, there's that um, story in, in chapter 1. But I'm going to read another uh, thing where in Second Peter 1.16, he says that we did not follow cleverly invented stories. First of all, Peter wasn't smart enough to, to do that, I don't think. No offense, Peter. I love Peter. I, I relate with him a lot. But he wasn't that smart to be able to do that. Neither were the disciples. Okay, to have cleverly invented uh, these, much less been willing to die for if they knew it to be a lie. Okay, there are people who die for what they believe to be the truth, that may be wrong. Okay, but no one dies for what they know to be a lie. And yet, what happened with the disciples? All of them, you know, all of them except John, were martyred, right? Um, and died believing and teaching exactly what we read in Scripture. Then you have the um, external evidence test, uh, which looks outside the text themselves to ascertain the historical reliability of historical events. In other words, the geographical locations and the cultural consistency and stuff and everything of the biblical text. And you, you look at it and say, okay, what do other people outside of the Bible say about it? Um, and it is many of the events, people, places, and customs in the New Testament are confirmed by secular historians, who were almost all uh, who were almost uh, who were almost contemporaries with the New Testament writers. People like Josephus, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, Suetonius, and the Roman governor uh, Pliny, they make direct references to Jesus or affirm one or more historical New Testament references. Even if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, historically, to be honest, intellectually honest, you have to admit that there was an individual who was born and may not believe in the miraculous birth, but he came to be, and, and that he lived a life that was transforming and ultimately was crucified, right? Even if you don't want to believe the rest of it. 
But nonetheless, uh, you have others, uh, uh, secular historians, who affirm this. You have early church leaders such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, and Clement of Rome, all writing before 250 AD, uh, who shed light on the historical accuracy of the New Testament. And even uh, uh, secular historians agree that the New Testament is a remarkably historical document. Um, you may not believe it. You may be like Aldous Huxley, says, I, I, I choose not to because it interferes with my sexual mores and I want, how I want to live and being accountable, but I can't criticize it on grounds like that. Um, so you look at manuscripts, you look at archaeology, and over and over again, there is comprehensive field work and careful biblical interpretation which affirms the reliability uh, of Scripture in regards to archaeology. There have been many claims throughout history that says, you know, uh, uh, this is not true because, you know, the Bible isn't true because of this, this, this people never existed or this place never existed or whatever, uh, or is something different, only to find out, ultimately, archaeologists discover, hey, it's there. For instance, the Hittite kingdom. They said, well, the Bible you know, is wrong about that, and there was such a thing as the Hittite kingdom until one day archaeologists found the Hittite kingdom civilization. And now we have volumes of books on the Hittite kingdom. Or they'll talk about Nineveh and say it didn't exist like the Bible describes. Or they'll talk about Jericho and say, well, that didn't exist until we find out, oh, well, there was an old Jericho, you know. Uh, and that's the one the Bible was talking about and everything. Um, Sir William Ramsey, one of the best, uh, most well-known New Testament examples, uh, concerns the books of Act, the books of Luke and Acts. Uh, Sir William Ramsey was a biblical skeptic, trained as an archaeologist, and then set out to disprove the historical reliability of this portion of the New Testament. However, through his painstaking uh, Mediterranean archaeological trips, he became converted, one after another, of the historical statements of Luke uh, that were proved to be accurate. Okay. It's like I said before, um, truthfulness of intent is always truthfulness or prior to truthfulness of content. In other words, if someone is open to the truth of Scripture, then if you're sincerely honest in that respect, then what does Jesus say? He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Right? But if you are bent and against God and don't want to see the truth, then you can twist and manipulate it like Shakespeare said, even the devil can cite uh, Scripture for his own purposes. Okay? And twist it how he wants to. And you can go about your way. And God will let you do that. Because that's, you, that's the way you chose. So you have manuscript, uh, archaeology. We already looked at some of the prophecy, and I won't, for sake of time, I won't bury you with that because we've already looked at some of the prophecies. And then, but statistics, and uh, this is the point where you, you know most people would kind of eyes roll, like, "Oh gosh, he's going to talk numbers." Um, uh, but the excerpt, there's an excerpt from a guy I keep calling Stephen Stoner, but his name's Peter Stoner, in a book called Science Speaks. And in this, he boils down, he goes through all these numbers, which it will put you asleep trying to read the book, you know, but, but, but you have to remember basically what it comes down to is he takes eight prophecies concerning the Messiah, and he says, 
the statistical probability of, uh, of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person are 10 to the 17th power. In other words, 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Okay? Logically impossible. Okay? That it just could happen in any one individual. Yet we have, as I told you already, many more than eight. Right? I just read to you probably 20 today. Okay? Um, but it's again going back and finding that smoking gun. And again, it's prophecy that was given centuries before. This wasn't like a self-fulfilling prophecy like Muhammad had and says, oh, well, well, I'm going to go back to Medina one day. Well, you know, that's easy to do if I want to fulfill it, but that's not prophecy in the biblical sense, okay? Um, and uh, so, anyways, the statistical probability uh, that any or all of the Bible-specific detailed prophecies could have been uh, fulfilled through chance, good guessing, or deliberate deceit is ridiculous. The Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on hundreds of subjects, and yet there is one consistent, non-contradictory theme that runs through it all, and that is God's redemption of mankind. So the next time someone denies the reliability of Scripture, just remind them of this little acronym, MAPS. In conclusion, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth in a very humble manner. The Savior of the world and the God of all creation put on humanity to do what? To die for our sins, for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of mankind. And to conquer death. Doing what? Giving hope of salvation to all who will turn from their sin and believe on him. He offers that to you today. If you don't know him, I encourage you to investigate. So the question is, when we look at it, one day he says he will return. Just as he came before, he's going to come again. We've made that prophecy. Okay? But he won't come as a seemingly helpless baby, but as the risen, glorified, sovereign Lord and judge. And the question for you is, what will you do and what will it be like for you on that day? Because he is coming back. Will you tremble in fear before the holy, righteous God as you are condemned for rejecting his gracious offer of salvation? You remember, you say, well, you know, I'll do it another day. Um, I'll get right with God at some point in time. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you know, the stats, you know, point in that direction. The history does, the manuscripts, all that stuff. Yeah, but another day. Hmm. I want you to have a, a verse. We know most of, I started the title of the message here, uh, John 3.16, the first phrase, which says, For God so loved the world. Right? That's why he came. Because he loved. But it goes on in verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But what? But whoever does not believe is condemned already. So in other words, if you feel like, you know, hey, I, I, I can do it on my own. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll think about it, you know, another day. 
understand that you're already in a position that God says is not good for you. Um, scripture says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God has given enough evidence of himself to make faith in him a most reasonable thing, but he's left enough out that you can't arrive by sheer reason alone. At some point, you have to take that step of faith. Okay? Lee Strobel made an argument in his book, The Case of Christ, and he took almost two years to make an investigation. I told you before, he was an atheist. Uh, he was a... Um, uh, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune way back when. And uh, so he knew how to investigate, and he went through uh, and talked to all the people he could about Christ and about the things that, we dis that I discussed this morning. And after his almost two years of personal investigation, he comes down, and it is as if the Spirit of God is speaking to him and he says, I open my Bible, and I turn to John chapter 1. And he says, in John chapter 1, it says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Believe, receive, and become. Receive, the evidence is too of history is too strong to ignore. If you think that you can ignore it, you're fooling yourself. Don't put it off. Receive it. The due plan of all other religions versus the done of Christianity is the choice. And like D. James Kennedy said, that's the, that's how you can define all religions you know, with Christianity in that relationship and just the word done. You take the D.O. and it says all other religions in the world say do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be right. Hopefully. Don't know, but we hope. But what does Christ say? One of the things he said on the cross was to tell us so. The Greek word, it is finished. Perfect, completed, done. Okay? Believe receive, become something different. And as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. Right? You want to experience Christmas and what the true meaning of this season is all about? It all begins with Christ. It begins and ends. Please stand.